Welcome to The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Ben Rausch, a third-year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. And I'm Adam Swirsky, a second-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. We realized the educational power of podcasts for medical education and worked with a great team of students, residents, and attendings to create a resource specifically for interventional radiology. We will be the hosts of this episode, and we hope that you will find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of the Sound of IR podcast, in which we will discuss peripheral arterial disease, or PAD. For this episode, Santa Herwald and I interviewed Dr. Kumar Madassari, an interventional radiologist at Rush University Medical Center. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kumar Madassari about the role of interventional radiology in the care of patients with peripheral artery disease, or PAD. But first, Dr. Madassari, we'd like to know, how did you decide to become an interventional radiologist? Hi, everyone. Uh, First of all, thanks a lot for having me. This is great that you guys are uh, doing podcasts and talks like this. This really is increasing our awareness in what we do. You know, my, my story of interventional radiology is by accident, which I think as I talk to more and more people, it happens. Um, you guys are a different era now, but uh, when I was in med school, I originally was planning surgery. So I was actually a surgery intern um, at Rush, planning a life in surgery. And I just, for some reason, it just wasn't clicking for me, but I was very close to everybody I worked with. And uh, some of my seniors were like, why don't you, uh, since you like, you know, the technical aspects of the surgery and all this, but it's just not for you. Why don't you check out IR? And I go, that sounds great. Uh, what's IR? So then um, I actually went downstairs to our, uh, to our IR area and met some of the physicians there, uh, Dr. Frawl and all these people were there. And I just kind of got absorbed and I said, this is what I want to do. And then luckily, you know, the, the, the program opened up a second year spot, so I didn't miss any time. I just continued and kind of stayed there the whole time. Everything just been on the right track. So for me, I learned everything about interventional radiology within a short time span and just loved it, um, which is opposite what I'm seeing a lot of people get into experience in undergrad and med school, and they're learning so much more about it now because of our outreach. So that's how I became to become an interventional radiologist, and I would do it 100 times over. That's amazing. So as you've now been in practice for a while, how did you want to structure your current practice of IR, and how is your current practice structured? So I think how we identify that kind of depends on what type of work environment you're in, whether you're in a small community hospital, private, or you're in a pseudo-academic, or you're in a full academic. Uh, at our practice, uh, we are a full academic center. We have fellowship, residency, um, you know, clinic, uh, and all that. So my goal was to stay where that was when I had the opportunity because we have a lot of room to be innovative. I, I wanted to have a clinic where I can see my patients before and after or a referring colleague can say, hey, I'm not sure what to do with this, or I have this patient, do you mind seeing them? I can get referrals from out of state, see the patient have a lengthy discussion about what we do. We're not a service line as we once used to be considered. So the practice structure I wanted was one where I can see my patient before and after or after I see him as an inpatient acute setting and follow them longitudinally and not just be a, you know, a temporary member of their care team to be a a long-term partner in improving their health. So for me, I want to be an academic environment where we can come up with new techniques, new findings, disseminate information, and also to, to mold and uh, encourage the new IR trainees out there who are going to go out and carry on what we do. So that's how we have it structured. And I wanted to be focused on arterial work, uh, which is what we are lucky to have. Um, so it sounds like you were pretty forward, forward thinking now since the practice of IR seems to be really focused on that longitudinal care. I think that's the change that we have realized we've needed and we're kind of making sure everyone understands and, and, and forces upon themselves. I tell 
all our fellows, when you're going out looking for jobs, ask your potential employer, what, what kind of clinic can I have? And if they don't support that, that's not the people we're training. We want physicians who understand what disease they have, how they contribute to healthcare, and also how we can be an active partner. It's not enough that we just see a patient, do a procedure, and say bye. You want to see that patient. You might find something else they have going on that you can refer them, their family member. There's so many things that, especially when we're dealing with these complex oncologic diseases, women's health diseases, and especially arterial diseases, that it's not a one and done. It's a how do we keep on top of this for the patient? So for me, I think that's something we need to get everybody involved in. With that, we'd love to launch into the discussion of peripheral artery disease. Um, so my understanding is that uh, PAD is one manifestation of a systemic atherosclerotic disease. And in mild cases, it can be symptomatic, but in severe cases, it can really be incapacitating and even uh, limb-threatening. Dr. Madassari, could you describe for us how a patient with PAD might classically present for medical care? So when it comes to peripheral arterial disease, it's uh, one part of a spectrum of, obviously, arterial disease mostly related to atherosclerosis. So you have these patients who have diabetes, hypertension, uh, sometimes uh, cholesterol problems, and also that may have genetic issues. Uh, most of them present in their mid to later part of life with, you know, with claudication symptoms. That's your, that's going to be your classic patient, whether it's a aortoiliac problem where they'll come in with buttock claudication or rest pain in that area or other symptoms as they go down the leg to the thigh and calf. Majority of patients that get worked up for chronic back pain, unfortunately, it takes a long time for them to get to the diagnosis of this. But I think uh, the diagnosis has gotten a little bit faster in patients' lives where people are understanding to look for the arterial exam and looking for maybe some non-invasive imaging when they report back pain. A lot of times it used to be considered, oh, they probably just have some spinal stenosis, let's get an MRI. And that MRI may incidentally catch something, but in general, it needs to be on the top differential for patients with back pain, claudication, erectile dysfunction, um, a lot of those diseases. But majority of patients will come with claudication or in the process of finding a wound or early rest pain that they find out how bad the PAD is. Um, what are some things in the patient's history or physical exam that would tip you off that it, the claudications like symptoms are due to a PAD uh, instead of one of the other diagnoses that might be considered? So more than just in the history, the history part of it is mostly a progressive worsening of their, their intolerability of walking a certain amount of blocks. So you always look at how many blocks can the patient walk. That's something that even in med school, you guys learn um, what that's something to elicit from a patient in your, in your history and physicals. How many walks can you, how many blocks can you walk before you have to rest? Does that pain get better when you rest? If it is, then that's a classic sign for claudication. Uh, if they, if they're concerned that this may be something else like a nerve issue, like sciatica or you know, something like that, that's when an MRI can be beneficial, but that's where the physical exam comes in uh, paramount. And when they're doing the pulse exams of the femorals and the popliteal and the, and the ankle sometimes, if you're going kind of more advanced, that's where you start picking up things and then you get an ultrasound. So it really depends, but a progressive worsening claudication, which then can you know get into rest pain, hopefully you catch it earlier. And a lot of that involves with these patients who may also have coronary artery disease, which kind of concomitantly can be occurring with these patients. So that's part of Something you see, patients with PAD may also have coronary disease. Patients with coronary artery disease also likely will have some PAD. So it's something that we have to work together to, to, to discover in these patients early on. And with that, what else would be on your differential diagnosis for these patients? Uh, from a PAD standpoint? Yeah. Other than that, it'll be spinal stenosis, some type of musculoskeletal issue other than that. But 
the kind of the symptoms in the exam kind of play towards what the diagnosis is most likely going to be. But an MRI in that situation would help at least rule out, you know, if there's a spinal issue or something else. But if you have a patient who's diabetic, hypertensive, smoking, and they have intolerability of exercise or walking after a certain amount of blocks and it's getting worse, you're pretty much going to find some PAD in that patient. Interesting. And so what, what role do interventional radiologists generally play in the diagnostic process of this disease? So nowadays, since, we're, since we have our clinics and we're working with our family medicine, podiatrist, uh, internal medicine, and all these other practices, uh, nephrologists, we're seeing patients that have these symptoms that need a workup for this. And a lot of them will come from cardiology or whoever else is seeing these patients. But what we do is kind of dual part. If you're part of an interventional radiology team that also does imaging, you might be reading a CTA when they evaluate a patient, the CTN geography, and then see that you have something that you can offer a treatment for. Or you may be part of the vascular lab where you go and you see the ultrasounds and where they do uh, duplex ultrasounds and you, you can kind of be part of that early process. But more importantly, in your clinic, you do a thorough physical exam and history taking and you evaluate the patient. You can have an ultrasound in your own clinic and kind of get a, a basis of that. So from there, we do an angiogram or CT, depending on how you practice your PAD work. And uh, you can confirm the diagnosis and offer treatment at the same time. While we're on that subject of different diagnostic modalities, can you talk a little bit about some of the newer modalities like uh, intravascular ultrasound and what difference those are making? So intravascular ultrasound is interesting. It's, it's helping a lot of people treat more than what they just see on the angiogram. And it's interesting. It's a, it's a debate that's going on, especially with insurance companies, determining whether or not they will you know, reimburse for that and this and that. But on an academic side or a place where you're trying to do what's best for the patient, you may see what looks like a great stent opening or balloon angioplasty. And if you actually do IVUS, you'll find that there's a little bit more stenosis or landing of the stent than you were, than you thought, whether or not that translates into needing to treat and maybe being a little too aggressive. We don't know yet. If you have good angiographic skills and your ability to interpret what you're doing is good and you're seeing the patient of follow-up that will dictate whether or not you need to incorporate some of the newer technology intravascularly. We don't, in our practice, we don't use a lot of it. It's something that when you're questioning, you can bring it out and use. It's not too complicated. It is costly. But if it's something that helps you get a better result for your patient, then you can. So I'm not for it or against it necessarily, but I think it's a good tool to have if you feel you need to get better results. And along those same lines, um, in terms of deciding whether to treat a lesion, what would be your threshold for treating PAD with a procedure um, based on the patient's symptoms? So if a patient has debilitating claudication symptoms and it's affecting their quality of life and they are someone who's, you know, need to potentially have a lot more active life and they're not on their end stage and they're kind of slowing down, it's something we talk about. There's a lot of things that we can do as an outpatient setting for PAD when it comes to, you know, recanalization and angioplasty and stenting that it's very uh, low risk when you compare to other options. And, you know, for us, we do work with our surgical colleagues. So if there's a better option for them, we'll know based on the angiogram. But for a lot of these patients, if it's affecting their life enough that they come see me, then that's something we have a discussion and try to offer them that we can make your life better if this is a true cause of your symptoms, which angiographically and based on your history and physical, you can kind of narrow it down to. I see. Um, have you ever worked with patients who are only mildly symptomatic? And in that case, do you take a more longitudinal approach or um, how, do you, how do you discuss their treatment with them? Correct. So one thing in the, in the global care of our other serotic disease and PAD that we need to all be aware of and have a good understanding with is 
what are the non-invasive ways to treat PAD or at least work with PAD before you have to consider doing anything with or without a scalpel? A lot of that involves exercise programs. You know, there's good data on there and studies out there saying that patients who have PAD should have trials of uh, supervised exercise programs, which some hospitals and clinics have, and you can have work with your cardiologists who already have that going. And also there's medications that they should be optimized on for their diabetes, for their hypertension, whether it be uh, beta blockers or ACE inhibitors. And also there's medications such as salazazole or pletal that are known to be somewhat effective in helping patients that have PAD symptoms. So those are all things, including exercise program, medication optimization, lipid uh, statin drugs that are all necessary for us to understand if we're someone who treats PAD and then down the line to CLI. Those are all things that we have to evaluate and see what level they're at before we decide to treat. And that's something that we have to have that discussion in clinic and have a thorough understanding of. Um, And in addition to how symptomatic the patient is, are there any other factors that you would weigh in the balance when you're deciding whether a patient might merit some procedural treatment for their PAD? I mean, the things that we have to consider uh, for a patient is how uh, how good of a compliant patient are they going to be when it comes to following through with a lot of times when we do stenting, they have to be on, you know, possibly Plavix or aspirin and other medications. Can they tolerate that? Will they show up for follow-up visits? Um, you know, what is their support like structure at home? Are they in a nursing home? All those fat and uh, number uh, on top of that as well is will they tolerate the procedure with or without anesthesia? you know, are they clear for that type of symptoms? You don't want to put a patient at more harm than they are at baseline. But if it's something that you take all those risks and you outweigh the benefits with it, then, um, you know, you go ahead and proceed after having a lengthy discussion with the patient, their family, and also the referring physician. So it seems like uh, PAD is a condition where uh, interventional radiologists collaborate closely uh, with our vascular surgeon colleagues. I think to have a successful uh, endovascular PAD practice, you have to have a good relationship with a, with a surgeon, either you know in your place or wherever you refer to. If you don't have that, then you can't be as good and as aggressive with PAD. Uh, as a good endovascular specialist, you have to know what are the right patients that you see on imaging or workup that may be better suited by a surgeon. You know, if you have a young patient that has good veins and is a good uh, bypass candidate, those have a longer longevity for most things than you have an older patient who may do better with endovascular approach. So, you know, although we say everything's minimally invasive and we're much better at it, that's true, but you have to understand when is the right time to have the surgeon intervene. And that requires you to have a good relationship with the vascular surgeon at your place or wherever you're, you're interacting with. And we rely on each other. We can have complications. They have complications. So, Lucky at our place, we do. We have a lot. We have a big uh, discussion with every case that we have a question about uh, with our vascular surgery colleagues. We do a, a weekly vascular surgery conference where we show either aortic cases that we're going to intervene on, or you know, complex PAD CLI cases that we want to have a better opinion on, and just learn from each other. And at any point, we can call them; they can call us. But that's not the case everywhere. There's a little bit of a turf war, obviously, as everybody knows. But you have to have someone you can trust as a surgical colleague if you're going to take on these endeavors. Interesting. So it seems like there's a lot of cases where it's not completely clear uh, what procedure should be done, but are, are there some clear cut cases when it's clear that the best choice is uh, endovascular or open vascular surgery? So I think the open vascular surgery part, uh, when you see patients that are, you know, a good bypass candidate, they have occlusions with good distal vessels that 
you know, have good veins and they've never had a cabbage before. They don't have a lot of surgical comorbidities where they're at a higher risk for surgery and you have a young patient, they're going to do better with the bypass. And that's a discussion that we have, you know, either before or on the table with our vascular surgery colleagues and say, Hey, this may be a great patient that would do better with this. And, you know, we let the patient know in clinic if it's something that we think will be better suited surgically, we'll let, you know, we'll let the, you see the proper person and work together. So, you know, when you have it, it's not often, but when you have a young person with that type of symptoms where, uh, you know, a bypass can be done, they have great runoff, then that's the right, that's the right call. But a lot of times what we see, especially regionally, you have a lot of people in their older ages, they have three, four or five comorbidities, which puts them out of a, a risk for an operative situation that may not go so well. And a seizure will be kind of worried. So when we can do something with conscious sedation on an outpatient basis and give them a good five, 10 year outcome from that, and then, you know, we'll see how the data goes beyond that then I think in those situations, we're, we're better suited for the patient. But we have to have both options in our mind at all times. Interesting. So Dr. Mandasari, once you and the patient have decided that endovascular treatment is the best choice for treating the patient's PAD, what labs or other studies would you want to make sure you order before a procedure? And what might these show that would change the timing or the technique of the procedure? So after the after or during the clinic visit, we are able to kind of get a lot of information as to what our approach may be or what we might be dealing with. However, there are some things we have to take into consideration, one of them being what is our renal function status. Since we are using contrast dye for a lot of these patients, we always get a, a more recent within a few days creatinine and uh, BMP as well, just to make sure what's going on. A CBC, just to make sure what their hemoglobin is, make sure they're not showing some weird signs of infection that we need to evaluate. And also an INR, since we worry about bleeding risks, especially, you know, some of these patients may have concomitant liver disease or other such as that. With creatinine, since we have so many patients nowadays in the, in the, in the world with renal disease, we've become very good at using CO2, which is a good uh, alternative to contrast to a certain limit. So there are, there are times when we'll treat an entire CLI case with 10 cc's of contrast. It's not the easiest but we can get a lot of information based on just the CO2 angiogram all the way down the, up to the knee and below sometimes. It depends on how the runoffs are. So just from a lab standpoint, that affects our timing and treatment in the, in the sense of are they on dialysis? Are they not on dialysis? Do we need to talk to their team about you know, how much contrast is okay? There's a lot of studies out there questioning how much damage does contrast really cause. We don't know. And then on top of that, you know, we like to see it. We have to, these patients should be getting non-invasive duplex ultrasounds. That gives us so much information with uh, PVR graphs to show us where we think the level of disease really is. The ABI ankle breaking index is, is the most sensitive non-invasive test we can get for any patient with PAD or CLI. Gives us a real good baseline as to what we're dealing with, how bad is the disease. And, you know, with the caveat that it may be artificially elevated if it's calcified and there's things you can do such as toe pressures index and all that to to support that but if i get a physical exam that shows weak femoral pulses or no pulses or they've had extensive surgery those are the patients that i end up asking for a cross-sectional ct that i'll order we don't routinely get ct or mris mras for our patients because we're going to do a good angiogram anyway but if I have weak pulses in the FEMS or they've had a lot of surgeries, those are times that I would get a CTA because I don't know what I may be getting into. They may have complete occlusions of my access sites. They may have had bypasses, ligations, all these things. So if the exam doesn't look right or their history's off, then those are times I'll get a CTA. That may delay the case by a few days. Other than that, the physical exam, the non-invasives all kind of give us enough ammo to go ahead and treat. 
And since we've been talking about uh, PAD as a manifestation of systemic disease, it seems like a lot of patients might also have um, other comorbidities like coronary artery disease. So would these comorbidities change your planning or procedural approach? If they have comorbidities like a history of MI or, you know, coronary artery disease and it's on their exam or history, it seems kind of concerning. Those are times I will talk with their cardiologist and, and, and or whoever else is managing their care to make sure that a patient, this patient undergoing a, you know, possibly two hour procedure on the table with some conscious sedation, it's not going to put them at undue risk. And that's something we should have an open dialogue with, with whoever's seeing the patient as well or referring the patient, making sure they're all in the loop. And a lot of, some of these patients, if they need anesthesia, that's going to be a big issue if they have MIs and, you know, very poor heart function. And we will send them to our anesthesia pre-op clinic to be evaluated to see what level of anesthesia are they comfortable getting? Are they even okay to get any of it? What can we do? So, you know, history of MI or potential MI, those are all very big uh, factors that we have to take into consideration when we put into a procedure, how, no matter how minimally invasive it is. Dr. Modesto, would you consider sending a patient to um, check up with a neurologist if, for example, if they had carotid artery stenosis? Is this something you ever encounter when treating PAD? You know, what's funny is a lot of our patients have already been seen by the cardiology or someone else for their coronary artery disease. So if I do see a new finding or a new, that's something I would talk to our referring colleagues about in that situation. So if it's something that has not been evaluated properly, that is something that I definitely would refer them to be seen as well before we do something crazy. Are there any contraindications to the CO2 contrast that you mentioned as a way of um, preserving renal function? There really isn't, as long as you're doing it properly and carefully. Um, there are some articles out there of if you use too much or if you're not careful with what can happen. We never use it in the arterial system, or we never use it above the diaphragm in a patient. So anything for the infrarenal aorta all the way down through the toes, we use it. You have to give a, a little bit of time between each injection so your body has enough time to clear it. Um, if they have a PFO, somehow you know that they have a you know abnormal shunt in their heart. That is one risk you have to watch out for. You don't want it going up the up the head in the arterial system, cause a CO2 emboli. But outside of that, we use it on a, a lot of our dialysis patients. We do a lot of dialysis access work. We use it a lot of our, our arterial disease patients. So there's not a lot of contraindications for CO2 if you're using it in the right anatomy and with no other known kind of anomalies in that patient. So are there any special considerations that you would make for a patient with PAD who is taking anticoagulant medication? You know, for a long time, we were all very uh, nervous about a patient being on even aspirin for having any kind of procedure in intervention, uh, interventional radiology. However, I feel like as we've gotten better with our access techniques using ultrasound, um, our closure techniques uh, with all different types of closure devices or what I like to call fellow seal, um, where you get really good forearm strength from our fellows to hold pressure. All those things have made us a little bit more uh, avant-garde when it comes to patients who are on anticoagulation. For most of us, we don't necessarily have them stop their aspirin or their Plavix. Coumadin may be an issue. We do check the INR the day of, but we want to make sure they have optimal blood flow going down when we attempt to revascularize them. If we're doing an iliac recan, those are times when we may have a discussion to hold the plavix if we can, but it's, it's physician to physician and institution to institution. We've seen very, very few complications, if any, lately with the new techniques and new ways to close and just kind of imaging uh, capabilities that we prefer the patient to be anticoagulated so that we have the best chance of keeping everything open. From what I understand, it seems that there are multiple IR-based treatment options for a patient with PADs, things like balloon angioplasty, stent placement, atherectomy. 
Um, could you briefly describe these procedures and how you would choose between them? So as we all know, there's a lot of devices and uh, studies out there looking at what's the optimal treatment algorithm for every anatomical level and what part of the spectrum the patient is on currently. There's no perfect answer, but for when you're dealing with PAD, a lot of times you're dealing with the inflow to the leg. So in your iliac arteries and your sometimes your SFA popliteal arteries, a lot of people push the theory of no, leave no metal behind or leave no foreign bodies, but there's a time and a place for it all. Majority of patients, uh, number one, you want to, in my theory and what a lot of us practice is, you want to, number one, debulk. If you're talking about the SFA pop, you want to debulk it if possible and then balloon it. That's kind of our primary algorithm. If you have a patient that has small occlusions, I think doing an atherectomy with balloon, either regular or drug eluting, is the way to go in my mind. If it's a long, chronic, uh, total occlusion that you're recanalizing, a lot of those patients will need stenting because you're going to be subintimal a lot of times. In the iliac arteries, a lot of times if it's just a short focal area, then ballooning with either uh, kind of like a scoring balloon and some drug-coated balloon will be sufficient. If, uh, if it's a longer process, it's going all the way up to the bifurcation, then I'm going to consider stenting. In the common iliac arteries, I like to put balloon expandable covered stents. In the externals, I like to put uh, bare metal self-expanding drug-eluting stents and then try to preserve the internal iliacs. One thing people kind of brazenly go sometimes is covering the internal, just saying, oh, I think they have good flow on the other side. But that's something you have to talk to the patient about. It might take some time for them to develop the collateralization and not have those symptoms of having one of those internal arteries cut off. So it really depends on which part of the anatomy it is. I think, if possible, debulking with atherectomy and angioplasty for the infrainguinal arteries. And then at the iliacs, I like to just balloon or stent. I don't like to do too much atherectomy. You can have a lot of bulky disease, you can have a lot of emboli. So it really depends on the runoff. Patients that have very poor runoff below the knee, I don't like to do a lot of atherectomy because you might lose that vessel that they have. That's their lifeline. You know, vessel modification and angioplasty seem to be the way to go when possible. Yeah, it sounds like a lot goes into that and, um, and a lot of thoughts about the anatomy and how everything connects. Um, so there might be cases where you might block, the, if I understand correctly, there might be cases where you would block the internal iliac artery as part of the treatment. Yeah. Um, and if you do, normally we do that with a, with a bare metal stent so that you're not covering it. If you, you know, unless you have an uncontrollable dissection or something. And a lot of times with the bare metal stent, you will get flow through that into the internal. So you may not, uh, sacrifice it. If you have to, you have to, when you're doing aortic iliac stenting and all that, you do include it many times. You have to make sure the other side is good. Um, and if you have to, a bare metal stent gives you the better chance of having flow still go through that. And also in some cases, if it's just by, let's say you have bilateral internal iliac disease, there's times when we've kissed stents into the external and internal iliac arteries to preserve that flow. When you mentioned uh, sort of complications that can come from these interventions, uh, at, we've been talking about the internal iliacs. What are some complications that medical students or interns should be looking for in these patients after procedure? The most common complication that uh, we need to watch out for, number one, is going to be a groin complication, either a hematoma, dissection, those kind of complications. It gets a little trickier nowadays as we have, unfortunately, a bigger uh, habitus population where they have so much panis and tissue that the bleeding is going on for quite some time before we visibly see it. So you can't just base it on what you see on the groin, just looking for ecchymosis or hardening. Sometimes they have so much panis that you have to really notice it. But if they, if the patient's having symptoms after a procedure of 
leg pain, thigh pain, back pain, they're, uh, those are things that they have to immediately evaluate for the possibility of a pseudoaneurysm or a fistula or a dissection of the groin axis, number one. Another complication you can get is that you have acute, um, acute cold foot because in the process of whatever you did or in the closure or something else, that a plaque disrupted and went down and shut down flow that now you have a worse symptom than you started with. So that could be an emergent situation where you don't want them to develop you know, a cold leg and get a fasciotomy. You want to catch that early. So the, the biggest things you look for are signs of bleeding, back pain, which means blood is seeping in through the retroperitoneum. Those are all things that need to be caught early, cold foot. That's why it's very important to look at what's been documented in the pulse exam before and after a procedure. Our nurses before and after a procedure document what, what tones and what pulses we have in the foot before and after. So I, I would say, you know, the, the hematoma, the bleeding, the cold feet, those are the biggest things you need to watch for post-procedure. It seems like that's, some, uh, that's a place where medical students could be very helpful in post-procedure time. Exactly. I mean, patients, unfortunately, a lot of these patients are older, they have a lot of pain and back issues as it is. But if you spend enough time evaluating them, you can elicit that something wrong here and you get immediate either ultrasound or a non-contrast CT even just to look up. CTA would be great. But again, a lot of these patients can't get additional contrast. Even a non-con will show you that there's blood building up or an ultrasound could show you there's a, you know, the pseudoaneurysm when you look at your characteristic findings for that. So you've mentioned approach a little bit already, but as we consider the different types of approaches, how do you decide what approach is best for the patient with an endovascular treatment? So for most patients, if we're talking about PAD, um, a lot of us will practice the up and over technique where you are accessing the groin on the opposite uh, extremity that you're going to treat. That way you go up, you do an angiogram of the pelvic vessels, infrarenal aorta and pelvic vessels to see what you're dealing with in the pelvis first. And then you go down uh, down the other side and treat. If it's a patient that has uh, poor access on the opposite side of their extremity, then and you know that their common femoral on the affected side is okay, you can consider doing the same side, which is called ipsilateral, either uh, anagrade or retrograde, depending on where you know the disease is. In those situations where you're not so sure about the access, that's when a CTA would be helpful to know what you're going to run into, what are you going to have to treat, Sometimes when you're dealing with PAD, you're dealing with just aortic iliac disease, you'll have to get bilateral groin access so that you can treat both iliac arteries and kissing stent them. So those are all things where on the exam and the findings where you might have to get an access on the table or you know from your CTA you're going to get bilateral access. If you know it's just an SFA pop disease and you want to work with long, you know, uh, different systems, you can go down that same leg ipsilateral and just treat that from that side. You have to be more careful with your access, make sure it's accurate and where you're sticking. And also for your closure, if there's a lot of panis, it's a little bit different when you're going anagrade. But if you've done enough of them, it's possible. There are also rare cases where people have no way to access the femorals and they go from either the popliteal or foot all the way up to help treat it too. So those are on the very rare situations and not kind of for the early beginners. But uh, your approach is based on what your knowledge is um, of the inflow disease and your access points. And, you know, there's also times you may have to go from the arm because you have no femoral pulses and you can't get anything. You can even do a diagnostic angiogram from the radial brachial. As you can see on Twitter and everywhere else, there's longer devices coming out for radial access, 120 centimeter sheets and all that for, and also atherectomy devices, ballooning and stenting, that's all being custom made for radial artery treatment. So you know, your access points are going to be determined on how good of a preparatory exam or cross-sectional imaging that you have. 
And sometimes it comes after you've done your angiogram and you know what you're going to do next. As you mentioned, uh, the radial approach, and as you, as you said, that hashtag think radial sort of movement is is interesting. And has there been any evidence that has shown that that's more beneficial for patients, even if a contralateral approach could be possible? I don't think there's anything that shows it's it's better. It's just a lot of people say it's better because of the recovery for the patient. Uh, it's a lot easier. You know, we do radio for uterine fibroids and some visceral uh, oncological procedures, but we're not heavy on the radial or arm approach for PAD and CLI unless we have no other option, which is rare. So it's something that people can do. They feel comfortable, you know, innovating in that space and having another approach uh, to do it. That's fine. There's a lot of down downstream complications we don't know about. Ten, you know, down the road with the radial artery, radial artery if they end up with an occlusion or something else, we don't know what the long-term effects are. We use a lot of data extrapolated from the cardiac literature for uh, PCIs and everything that's been done, the radial and then the Sinai guys and everybody have done a lot of great work on radial artery uh, approaches and what their uh, outcomes are. So it's, it's a great, it's a great tool to know how to use, how to have it. And we need the people to innovate approaches from there so that we have more and more options. It is a, it is an incredibly easier recovery for the patient we just worry about these patients are going to need repeat treatments. You know, what kind of damage are we causing to the arm later on? We just don't know yet, but it's something we should know how to use. Uh, so along those same lines, talking about different, different techniques and ways of approaching the treatment, I know that there are many different types of stents you can use. So the bare metal stents, which you mentioned, covered stents, drug-eluting stents. Um, how do you decide which stent to use in these other cases? And also, how do you decide on the diameter and length of stent to use? So the use of uh, which stent and where, I mean, in general, we tend to use uh, bare metal drug-looting stents in majority of the PAD cases outside of common iliac arteries, or at least the way I I think of approach is you have a better, if you're going to stent it, um, having some drug elution and having bare metal so you're not kind of blocking off collaterals is the way to go. Covered stents need to be available, need to be used when you have a rupture in those rare occasions or you have a completely calcified subminimal tract or um, you've already tried bare metal, it's not, it's not staying open. You've tried to, you know, recanalize those as well and treat those. So cover stents are also an option there. But in general, outside of the common like artery, we tend to use drug-eluting bare metal stents. There's also non-drug-eluting bare metal stents that are known more for in the distal SFA pop region where there's a lot of flexion forces so, you know, your Superas and your Tigresses, those are all uh, stents that are non-drug-loading but bare metal and have better data on staying open in the flexion zones. So uh, the type of stent is based on the anatomy and what your recanalization was like, what type of stenosis you're dealing with. Is it heavily calcified? And, uh, you know, when it comes to sizing it, we typically go off of our angiogram some people choose to use IVIS and other ways to measure it, but a lot of times you base it on your angiogram. You want to overlap um, the area that you're treating by at least a centimeter, and you go on your diameter. You know, people choose different numbers, which are arbitrary, on how they oversize their stent sizes by 20 30% on their diameters. So a lot of that comes with practice. Some people like to go the next step in IVIS, and whether or not that's overkill, I don't know. But um, that's kind of how we use our stenting, or at least I use my stenting. When it comes to peripheral arterial disease plaque, are there types of plaque that are more challenging to treat? So when you have uh, heavily, heavily calcified plaque, that's kind of the ones that are going to be very 
difficult because they're going to be resistant to uh, a lot of ballooning. They can rupture more. Um, and also your subminimal course may occur more in those situations. So, you know, you try one, once you get across your goal is to debulk as much of that as possible. You don't want to send calcified plaques flying, but you know, it can happen. So uh, to me, the heavily, heavily calcified patients that you look like lead pipes going all the way down, those tend to be the most uh, difficult ones to treat. And you mentioned the debulking is important um, while, while taking precautions. Are, are there any newer or special techniques um, or approaches that, that also help with this situation? You know, when you have heavily calcified vessels, everybody has their own choice of tools. I think orbital atherectomy comes very well when you have, uh, when you're trying to debulk calcium, at least in our practice. Um, what are the, the concern with using any type of atherectomy in the legs for me is worrying about what am I going to potentially close off if something flies? So I try to do as minimalistic as possible, uh, especially in our advanced PAD CLI patients when there's not many vessels to go with. You don't want to convert a PAD patient into a CLI. So to me, uh, debulking it a little bit with orbital atherectomy where you're sending kind of a little bit of sand or you can use any of the devices out there that you feel comfortable with as long as you don't, you have to use distal protection if you're using other devices to me. Um, that's kind of how I'd approach it, just kind of get a better luminal gain and then decide struggling balloon versus stenting, depending on where we are. Interesting. Um, could you tell us more about this, uh, the distal protection to try and protect the vessels downstream of um, where, you, where you might be doing an atherectomy? Sure. When you're doing an atherectomy, like let's say in the SFA popliteal arteries, and you're going to use a debulking atherectomy system where you're going to be shaving off plaque, you put a, a device, there's a couple different brands, whether it's a spider or whatever else, it's a small conical shaped filter that's put over the wire. So what you do is you get below the area that you're going to treat, put this little filter, which is over the wire. And then over that wire, you do your debulking so that if anything flies off while you're shaving or whatever you're doing, it'll be hopefully caught in that basket, which then you can collapse and retrieve after your atherectomy. And then you can actually see, there's many cases out there in literature and Twitter and everybody's seen it where you find little pieces in that basket that you thought was going to be, you know, contained within the atherectomy system or not go anywhere. And it literally would have gone down and shut down a vessel. And that's very, um, it's very nice to see that when you pull it out, that it's a good reason why you did that. It is not cheap, but it's something that if you're using, you know, atherectomy, in my mind, you know, you tend to use it to protect what you have below the knee. So we've mentioned before, or you've mentioned before CLI, the, um, I'm blanking the CLI, something limb ischemia, critical limb ischemia. Okay. Um, so um, you mentioned before that we, um, you mentioned before that CLI or critical limb ischemia can result if one of these um, pieces of plaque basically goes downstream, and then that could be a very important thing to catch postoperatively. Um, how do you how do you treat this if you notice that unfortunately a piece of plaque did go beyond where you wanted it and is causing CLI. Uh, nowadays, we're fortunate that if you notice that you've lost a vessel that you had before and you're suspecting clot or plaque has developed, you can actually go after it with aspiration thrombectomy. So we have small catheters that have a, a vacuum suction attached to it. It's made by Penumbra. is the most common one everybody uses. Um, and you basically go down to that area of occlusion and you turn on this vacuum aspiration and it basically, if it works, um, which it does many times, it actually sucks the clot out or the plaque out. Um, it's been done for clot. It's been done for 
small dislodged pieces of closure devices. Um, we'll use it for some patients that can't tolerate having lysis uh, TPA dripped overnight because they have other issues. Um, so that's a good time to use that product when you know that you just recently lost a vessel on the table or just recently after a procedure. The other way is that you can try and drip medication through that vessel uh, overnight or even just systemic heparin, depending on how bad the disease is. Could you describe for us um, cases where a patient might present with a PAD emergency like CLI um, that hasn't resulted from a procedure? So the, the emergencies are the patient with a threatened limb. So anytime a patient comes in with arterial problems and they have a cold leg, cold extremity, uh, that's a situation where us in vascular surgery has to be ready to act. And if they have just coolness or a cold leg and a, a non-invasive imaging and exam tell you that there's loss of pulses, that's somebody you want to intervene on right away. If they have a loss of motor and uh, sensation, that's a situation where they may have to go emergently to the OR for fasciotomies because what that means is that they're, they are so acutely ischemic that all the fluid and everything's building up in the tissues that they need to relieve that pressure. And one way they do that is they make cuts in the, in the compartments of the, of the lower leg to relieve the pressure called fasciotomies. And also surgically, they'll try to go out and pull out the clot uh, directly from the artery. Those are the advanced threatened limb cases, but a lot of them will go in at the middle of the night uh, as IRs and find out how bad the disease is and put tiny infusion catheters across the clot to drip TPA overnight. That helps up. That helps relieve quite a bit of the acute clot, sometimes all of it. And then the next day we can go and see what's left to treat. What was the original lesion, the stenosis that was there that caused this and treat that so that this doesn't happen again. We spoke a little bit about the complications uh, to look for post-procedurally, but what is your normal post-procedural follow-up care for these, uh, for overall uh, PAD patients? You mean after the day of treatment? After the day of treatment. Yeah, yeah. So most every patient within two to four weeks have to come back to clinic to see us uh, with or without a new ultrasound, uh, depending on what we did and what we're seeing. But we, no, most more, more importantly, we just want to see them and see, are, you know, did anything happen that they didn't expect? Are they feeling better, most importantly? And have a discussion about what the next follow-up will be and, and talk to our referring physicians and colleagues that are also treating the patient as well to see, you know, if we're all on the right track. So within two to four weeks after procedures, when we see them in our clinic. And in general, do the, how soon do patients see an improvement in their symptoms and uh, do they see a full improvement, partial improvement? What, what generally do you see? Uh, what generally do you hear the patients telling you afterwards? For PAD, uh, surprisingly, you can see a lot of improvement uh, the day of, the day after, within a few weeks. Um, the greatest satisfaction you get is when you do a claudicant who has trouble, you know, with their daily activities and walking. And then, you know, the, before they leave or the next day, they get a phone call from our recovery. Anyway, all patients get a call and they say they're feeling better. They're actually, as soon as improved, that's, that's literally the most satisfying experience you get in what we do. So unfortunately, some of them, it takes a lot more time than that. They need to continue with their exercise programs or medications, but overall, if it's treated appropriately, they do see a considerable improvement in the short term and it can be maintained with good longitudinal care. So Dr. Madastri, where do you see the treatment of PAD going in the next 10 years and what role do you see IR playing in in this future? So I think where PAD is going to go in the next 10 years is more and more advanced uh, long-term outcomes that are successful with endovascular management. I think that's where we're going to go. Not that surgical options are not going to be um, still a good option is that just like we see with 
aortic repairs nowadays where majority of vascular surgeons would say it would have been open repair years ago. Now, most vascular surgeons who also do them will say, you know, now the standard of care is endovascular if not. So I think what we're going to see is better devices, better data, better, you know, balloons, the drugs, the absorbable sense, all these kind of things we're going to see that's going to make it more of a quick endovascular outcome that's going to give them better long-term results. When it comes to the integrated IR residency, I see nothing more than a benefit coming from the system where we're going to train better and better qualified interventional uh, medicine residents. These, these residents that we're training are IR are going to be heavy on the medical side of knowing what to do with a patient. We have to see the patients from a completely clinical standpoint and take their overall health into consideration. That's why the IR residency is incorporating um, you know, ICU time. It's incorporating vascular surgery time, hepatology time. Everything that we intervene with, we should understand the other side of it just as well too, because otherwise we can't offer these complex treatments. So the IR residency in my mind is going to help us develop better and better interventional physicians who can take care of the longitudinal care of a patient. That's awesome. Is there anything else important for listeners to know about the care of patients with PAD? I think what's most important to know is know what globally is happening to that patient and, you know, what all we can do to act on it early. Uh, PAD is just an early marker that can give a significant improvement in life and prevent what we fear most, which is critical limb ischemia. That's where we spend a lot of our time in our lab. But PAD is something that you can offer as an outpatient elective treatment, just like anything else, where they get to go home that day or the next day. And it's important for everyone to know how prevalent of a problem it is and not to not consider the diagnosis when they're working with a patient with back pain or difficulty walking. I mean, you need to know all the differentials, but that needs to be in the top three of your differentials when you're working them up. And one last question. Uh, Dr. Madassery, if you were on an elevator with an aspiring interventional radiologist who was going to see his or her first case of endovascular treatment of a patient with PAD, what insight would you share before one of you had to step off of the elevator? The insight I would tell that uh, aspiring interventional radiologist is that develop a sense of patience and a thirst for understanding what all is going on with your patient and what all you can do. There are so many downstream uh, benefits you can provide a patient by knowing the patient as a whole, setting their expectations appropriately as well as their family. And that's how you become a team player and an integral part of how that patient succeeds in life. Great. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Madassery, thank you very much for taking time to speak with us today. And we look forward to speaking with you in the future on, on other topics. Really appreciate you guys taking your time. I think this is fantastic. Uh, we're all about, you know, helping nurture the future of what we do. And I think it's, it's imperative that we all work together and anytime we can help out more than happy to, you guys are doing a great thing. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for you guys taking your time out on this. It's, a, it's, it's awesome to see. That's it for this episode. If you would like to be part of a podcast episode, we'd love to hear from you. If you are interested in interviewing a practicing IR physician, being interviewed by a member of our team, or contributing in any other way, please let us know. Our email address is the sound of IR, all one word, at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing endoscopic interventions, interventional oncology, and more. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on the podcast app of your choice. See you next time.